0: First Corinthians eleven is where we are, and we've been talking about communion. So, um, as we kind of have read through this, I'm gonna what I want to do is read uh, what we talked about last week, and then we're gonna kind of pick up and, and read stuff for this week. Okay, so uh, last week we started basically about verse twenty six, and we read this: uh, "For whatever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." Therefore, whoever eats of the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Okay, so that's kind of what we did last week. And we talked about what we, what, what's Paul pointing at here when he uses these words, unworthy manner um and, and we talked about how churches use that uh as kind of a you know if you're not saved or you're not a part of our church or we can't vouch for your worthiness um and what does that mean and so if you can remember if you were here last week or or listened to the podcast or whatever what are we talking about when Paul says eats or drinks in an unworthy manner what were we, what was the uh what was he referring to in that uh, loving the body okay Loving people, right? Um, because the Corinthians were not really doing a great job at that, right? I mean, you can imagine if if on Sunday morning, we, we make a big deal about greeting every single person that comes in the door. We want every single person to be welcomed to our church. We can't get it all the time. We're not 100%, but we try. Uh, and I always encourage you, if you're not the greeter, to make sure that we like or the safety net, and you go around and greet some people. So if they missed them at the door, you got them in in the seats. Uh, And every now and then there's somebody who says, well, you know, we came to your church and nobody greeted us. And I'm like, you sure you came to the right church? Like, this is a church that really greets people. But every now and then somebody slips through the crack and their impression is that we don't care about them. And we hate that impression. We don't want that impression. But could you imagine if at the door we were like checking people out for whether they were dressed well enough or not? whether they looked like they had money or not. What kind of car did you drive up in? Uh, by the way, how much do you make a year? Like, can you imagine if we confronted people and acted like our acceptance or our, our, our interaction with them was going to be based on some matter, like, matter of wealth or, or money or whatever? Can you imagine what that would be like? How, can you imagine if you were the person out front doing that, how uncomfortable you would feel doing that? That's essentially what the Corinthian church was doing at communion. They were segregating by, you know, matters of who was rich and who wasn't. And the people who weren't rich, the people who were slaves who couldn't own anything, you know, when we got together to have a meal, man, I'm glad you're here, but I'm not glad enough to share my food with you. I'm not glad enough to make you feel welcome. As a matter of fact, I'm going to make sure that I eat in front of you so you know I'm rich and you're not. You know I'm noble and you're not. And that's what Paul, when he says, be careful then when you come together at communion that you don't eat in an unworthy manner. The reason that's really important is because unworthy manner has been used in all kinds of contexts to mean all kinds of things. And, and I think if, if, you, um, if you ever find yourself in a place where a, a, a church or a pastor is saying to you, now we're going to have communion and I want you to search your heart and find if there's anything unworthy in you. Okay, how many times, what percentage of the time are you going to be able to find something unworthy in you? 100% of the time, right? We, we are failures and mess-ups. We do not come to communion to remind ourselves about how much of a failure we are. Now, that may feel like, oh, that, but that's a good thing. You, you're really serious about sin. Yeah, but what's communion about? Do this in remembrance of what? Of him, not of me. Right? And so there's this subtle twist to it that happens in churches. And our Christianity comes about my becomes about me, my performance, my measuring up, my can I beat myself up enough so that I feel like I've suffered enough so that maybe God will I want you know, that kind of thing. And it's not biblical and it's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about a church that has gone off the rails, and it's not hard to see how they've gone off the rails. Because as they celebrate Jesus Christ laying down his life, that you, my king, would die for me, they celebrate that by showing up the poor people in the church and and stratifying, according to wealth and possessions, the body of Christ. And so in an unworthy manner has that specific meaning. Certainly we could expand unworthy manner to mean some other things. But the idea is not, Search your heart and see if there is some secret sin inside of you before you take communion. Because if you take communion and you haven't rooted out that sin, you are eating and drinking condemnation judgment to yourself. That's what I heard growing up. And maybe that's what you heard in, in different scenarios. And yet that's not what Paul's saying here. Do you see that? And so as we kind of go through that, what we saw is, you know, this wasn't a new concept that how I treat my brother or sister in Christ. Is directly connected to my relationship with God. Right? We saw a couple of passages. Anybody remember some some things that Jesus said that, that connect the two? Right. Matthew twenty five, judgment, separating the sheep from the goats, and Jesus says, um, "You came to me and visited me when I was in prison. You you fed me when I was hungry. You clothed me when I had no clothes." And people say, well, what are we talking about? We never saw you like that. And Jesus says, in as much as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And there's a direct connection between serving people, loving people, showing compassion to people, and serving Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Any other verses come to mind where there's a direct connection between my relationship with people and my relationship with God? Anything else? Remember the, the two great commandments? First is? Love the Lord. Second is, love your neighbor. On these two, hang all the law and the prophets. Not on this one, love the Lord your God. On these two, hang all the law. Interesting how they are interconnected, right? And even to the place where in in Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you have a problem with your brother and you come to worship, stop what you're doing, go make things right with your brother, and then come worship. You know, in other words, be genuine in your relationship with God by being whole in your relationship with people. And so there was this correction that Paul's giving them, and he's, he's talking about them being guilty of the body of Jesus Christ. And there is a intended double meaning there. We are the body of Christ, and so you're guilty of, of shredding the body of Christ, as you come together and celebrate how Jesus' body was broken. As you are just marveling at the fact that Jesus would let his body be broken and destroyed, for me, how hypocritical is it then for me to turn around and destroy his body? You know, I'm so thankful you let that happen, so now I can just trample all over the body of Christ. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't go together at all. And that's Paul's point. Uh, As he goes in. So he says, you should examine yourself. And his point about examining yourself is not digging deep into the dark recesses of your soul, but simple things. Four, next verse, for anyone who eats or drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord. Simply put, anyone who comes to communion and has this opportunity to remember the the Lord and, and, and his body and what that means and the implications of that, but turns a blind eye to it, and and basically tramples all over it. That person should have examined themselves before they did that. Do you think it was difficult for the Corinthians to know that they were off base in the way they were treating each other? At least half of them it wasn't because they were the ones getting trampled on, right? It wasn't a struggle for them to figure out that this was a problem. And so um, we can't take seriously the body and blood of Christ if we don't embrace the command he gave in response. I'm going to lay down my life, you do the same. Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends. So as I've done for you, you do for one another. That's Jesus at the Last Supper, right? And so we are to be mindful of that. And so what he says is, let's pick it up there. Um, Verse 29, For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further instruction. All right, so Paul says that what they're doing, because they haven't examined themselves, Paul kind of gives them two options here, and it's the same two options that we have as the body of Christ. He says to them, either you take a look at your own life and you acknowledge what God is doing and you correct to what God is calling in your heart and your soul, or God will correct one or the other. So let a man examine himself means... You are, you are a human being who tends to forget the things that matter in life. So God has ordained a communion service that happens on a repeated basis so that when you come together and, you, and the bread begins to go around, you are reminded to the core of your being about what this is all about, about what matters in this life. I mean, think about it. You probably don't love anyone more than you love your kids. You know, your kids, that it's your heart and soul, right? Would you rather your kids have all the wealth in the world and be lost or would you rather they suffer and die a young death but be saved? What would you rather? What's it all about? What, why do we as believers act like there's some competition for what it's all about? Why do we do that? Why do we act like, you know, our children's education should at times necessarily get in the way of their spiritual life. Why do we do that? Why do we act like my job should get in the way of my spiritual life? Do, do we really believe what it's all about? See, we, it's, it's a struggle for us. So God ordained that we get together as a church, and we pass around bread, and we pour juice, and we sit and we look at those things, and we go, this is what it's all about. So eat and drink in remembrance of Him. Examine yourself. Are you living, you know, are you aligned with the the priorities of God? If God thought it was so important, this salvation thing was so important, that He sent His Son to die for you, if He took all the riches of heaven and set them aside, if He took all of His well-being and His health and His whole set it aside, came down to earth and laid down His life for you, what are you holding on to? that's in the way of that thing God was all about, salvation, life in Jesus Christ. You know what I mean? So it's like this reorienting thing. So examine yourself, right? And what he's saying here is examine yourself in line with, are you following God in your life? Are you following his example? Are you living out Jesus Christ? And I want to talk about this because sometimes we get nervous. Uh, Bad stuff starts to happen in your life. Anybody ever had bad things happen in your life? couple people okay one of the things that happens especially if it it, it feels those there's those seasons where it feels like an avalanche on you you know it just kind of like piles up one of the things that happens to believers and mostly good-hearted believers is is god mad at me is god punishing me is god after me right did i do something that made him upset and now I'm getting punished. And you go to a passage like this and you, can, you think what you find there is, yes, he is. So I want to talk about that for a little bit because I think that's really, really important. Um, when he says here in the verse, um, anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. By the way, first of all, it's the body of the Lord, not the body and blood without recognizing the body of the Lord. That's the double entendre there, right? Right. Um, But he eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, later on, down in verse 32, when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so we will not be condemned by the world. Condemned is also the word judged. Okay? But they're two different words. The first word is krima. The second word is katakrima. Okay? Now, those two Greek words have a similar root, but they have different ideas behind them. They both mean a, a decisive separation, a, a, a splicing apart, a, a dividing between. In other words, I am in judgment. I am separating the right from the wrong. I'm saying this was right and this was wrong. This this is praiseworthy and this is curseworthy, like that kind of a thing. That's what, the idea there. All right. The word krima, which is the word used to believers when we are judged, we drink judgment on ourselves, okay, that's the first word. And that word has the idea of training, Uh, removing the things that don't belong so that the things that do remain, suffering for the sake of progress, Uh, cutting away of the things that shouldn't be involved in your life, Uh, discerning eye that says, this has got to go and this has got to stay, in fact, this has got to increase, this has got to decrease, that kind of thing. Okay? It is a word that is used in training up children. Because children do not have a good sense about, or most children don't, what should stay and what should go. Right? When when you tell them that that's enough TV, very rarely are they like, you're right. I was thinking my brain was turning to mush. You know? It's like, but, you know, SpongeBob is coming on. I got to watch that. Like, they, they don't discern. Right? And so as adults, we have to step in and we have to grow that discernment. We have to exercise discernment for them sometimes. We have to train them. At times, we have to, to stop things that are happening. At other times, we have to stir up things that should happen. That's the idea in this we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. It, it's this sense that God has to get activated inside of the church and inside of individual lives because discernment and, 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 and uh, decision-making is clouded and wrong and, and off-base. The implication from the story here is it's willfully off-base. It's not off-base because of ignorance. It's off-base because of pride. It's not off-base because you don't know any better. It's off-base because you don't care. And then God steps in, which blends very well with what we know about how God interacts with people. Remember James 4 talks about God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. God does not resist the wicked. He resists the proud. God does not embrace or give grace to the righteous or the good enough. He gives grace to the humble. Right? So this idea that comes out of this passage for people about, oh no, I've been trying to do the right thing. I was really trying to be on the right path and I just couldn't do it and I messed up and I don't know what to do about that because God's now going to judge me. It's not... A good exegesis, it's not a good interpretation of this passage. Because this passage is talking about Corinthian believers who are knowingly and willfully exercising pride and arrogance in the face of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And they refuse to turn. And Paul is confronting them about it and saying, you must turn, and if you don't, God will bring discipline into your life. It is not a reference to the final judgment of believers. There's a thing in 2 Corinthians 5 called the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, a lot of judgment stuff going on with the Corinthians. Have you noticed that? Kind of like, you guys need to be aware that you're going to give an answer for how you live here. Come on, you know, like, wake up. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about we all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That we can receive what was done in this body, whether good or empty. Whether good or good for nothing. Kind of is is the way that uh, verse ten reads, and the idea there is that there it seems to be a separate judgment from the final judgment, which we call the Great White Throne Judgment, when the books are open and another book is open, and those who are not found written in the Book of Life are cast into the Lake of Fire in Revelation. That, that's a different judgment. This judgment, judgment seat of Christ, seems to be a judgment for just believers, where we find out where we, uh, you know, the, the, the works that we've done and the way that we've lived, what's left is for the glory of God. Whatever, whatever is there that's worthwhile sticks around, and whatever's not graciously, mercifully is burnt up and gone. And we, and we look forward to that judgment because we, it, it wipes away so much of my mistakes. It, it, in the grace and mercy of God, it takes away all the stuff that I wish I'd never done. Thanks be to God. Right, for his mercy and grace so but this is not talking about that judgment it's talking about while we're here on earth God's interaction with us as his people and the connection is if we don't take a serious look at ourselves God will bring discipline on us he will not let you live carelessly frivolously empty wandering he won't if you're a believer he will discipline you he will come after you so let's talk about that a little bit Because Paul says, this is why so many of you are weak and sick and dead. Fall asleep means dead, right? So what Paul is saying now, it could be that Paul says, if we don't exercise judgment, there will be judgment stirred up. And, And many times, judgment is you live with the consequences of your choice, you know? i 've talked to a lot of couples in, in the struggles marriage struggles, and some of the reason that people wind up in marriage struggles, maybe a lot of the reason people wind up in marriage struggles is because they 've sown seeds that they don 't want to reap the harvest of they said things they should have never said they married someone they shouldn 't knew they should 've never married you know they, that kind of stuff happens, and then you sit in the fallout and they come and they're like, you know, couldn't God like get out the magic wand and make it all better? Yeah, he could, but he doesn't do that. There's a sowing and a reaping thing. So a lot of the, the judgment that comes into our lives, the discipline that comes into our lives is, if you're going to choose this, then you're going to also choose what comes from it. I think that we as parents would do well to raise our kids like that. We don't do a great job at that because our heart breaks for them and we want to be... God's merciful. I want to be merciful. But in training children, I think we overstate the grace of God and understate the grace that God shows in letting us face our consequences. Because very often there is no other way for us to really learn what will only get through this thick skull if God lets me face the choices that I made. You know what I mean? And so... There's that idea of judgment that happens naturally. This judgment is not natural judgment. You could say, well, many are weak and sickly. Maybe it's because they're not getting any food. They come together at the love feast and nobody's feeding them and they're weak and sickly. But it it, it doesn't read like that. What it reads like is that God reaches down from heaven and pours out judgment, discipline on the people. That they should be waking up and recognizing you're on the wrong track and you need to get on the right track. All right? So so let's talk about this a little bit. What does it mean that God would bring physical suffering and even death on his people in discipline? What does that mean? That's a hard thing to get your head around, isn't it? It tells us that maybe we don't see God as clearly as we think we do. If that's a, if that when you hear that if that just makes you go, "Oh, then maybe we need to get a little bit deeper into what we're talking about here because this this is not ambiguous that in the Corinthian church, God was meting out judgment, discipline on them and that discipline was causing some to be sick, supernaturally sick, some to be weak, physically weak, and some even to die, some even to be removed from this earth. So what do we do with that? I thought God was forgiving. I thought God was love. It's the age of grace, right? How do I put that together? What What do I do with that? Any thoughts? There are times. Sapphire is a great example, um, where when God is, uh, when God knows that what needs to happen because of public. Uh, sin or, or being off base publicly or the beginning of something, it needs to be set on the right course. There are public fallouts to that. And I don't, I don't ask to Sapphira early in the church I and mean, we were talking about Acts five. God strikes them dead for lying about what they gave to the to the work of the Lord. Why? Because it, it was a crucial moment for people to decide, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going to treat God lightly because he's a God of mercy? You know, is can we pull the wool over the Spirit's eyes and, and thereby over Peter's? Can we fool God? You know, that, that's kind of what was up for grabs. So it was a bigger thing than whether or not they, they said they gave everything or not. Nobody really cared if they gave everything or not. It wasn't really that. It was the fact that they wanted to get credit for giving everything and hold it back and act like God was limited. And God poured judgment out on Sapphira. They both dropped dead on the spot and were carried out and buried. So there is some sense here of God purifying in public ways. Now, if you think about it, can you think about examples where God has purified his church, like not this church specifically, but his church in the world, when people who are proclaiming the gospel or whatever aren't living like they should and God brings discipline in their life? you think about anything like that? Any any examples? There are some, there are some names out there, right? Yeah, right. I mean, you go back to Jim Baker in the '80s, who had all kinds of money flowing in and, and a big reputation as a voice for God, and yet was living uh, behind the scenes and in a in a way that lots of people knew about, just not the mass public. Sinfully, um, and and greedily. And that fall was catastrophic, wound up in jail. I mean, just catastrophic. And, and it happens over and over again. In other words, God will not allow His church to be led off the path. God intervenes and God brings discipline. Why would He do that? Because He cares too much about the, His church to let it just wander after flesh. Individually, we could say, God cares too much about you to let you wander after your flesh. And sometimes it's because when you, when you wander after your flesh, you, you face the fallout of that. Sometimes it's because God steps in and says, no, I don't want you going this way anymore. I'm putting a stop to this. If you're going to keep going this way, you're going to have to push through this wall. You're going to have to overcome this tremendous pain. You're going to have to really want this sin to keep going. And sometimes we do. And eventually it gets to the point where God says, you know what? You are better off Not being on this earth anymore. The difference is this the discipline God brings is different than punishment. And here's here's why I want to make that clarification because it can feel like punishment when it's not. The idea of this, and I'm going to use these two words because I think these two words clarify it, at least for me. The idea of punishment is this you did wrong and you deserve to pay. You deserve to suffer because you did wrong, right? So like a jail sentence or whatever you you did the you killed somebody and so your sentence the what the price you pay is you lose your life. That's your payment to offset your wrong. Right? You have to suffer to offset your wrong. it is it is not um, like reformative. It is not meant to make you a better person. It is meant to make you pay for what you did wrong, right? We had a, a an accident in our in our family a little while ago, and we just found out today. You know, it's going to be fifteen hundred dollars to fix the car that was damaged in that accident. Okay, so that person could say, "Listen," and they, they were they were very nice. Hey, I forgive you. You know, I totally understand. It was there was no like nastiness in it, but the car that got hit still needed to get fixed, right? And so it wasn't about you know. You need to suffer because you were recklessly driving. It's, well, this is the damage you did, and so this is the price you pay for that damage. You may be a lousy person after you pay it. You may be a great person. We don't really care. You just have to make it right. You have to make up for what you did here. Right? Punishment from God is about making up for what you did, paying the price. Okay? Discipline is not about paying a price. Discipline is about being trained by Almighty God. Discipline is pain with a purpose for you. Pain with a formative idea that is molding you and shaping you. What you see in the New Testament, in Hebrews 12, here in 1 Corinthians 11, throughout the New Testament, is that God steps into our lives and will bring suffering and pain into our lives to form us, to shape us, to train us, to grow us. First, in First Peter, Peter talks about it. What, what credit is it to you if you do well or if you do badly and you suffer for it? If you pay for what you did wrong, that's what everybody does. But if you do good and suffer for it, this is good and acceptable with God. Right? That's, that's the thing we don't get. So the idea that God would step into our lives and put something in our lives that's hurtful or, sh- or causes struggle or pain or sickness or sorrow, It's hard for us to digest with the grace of God. But here's the grace of God. When a believer is taken off this earth, where does he go? And let me just throw the other side of it at you. If he were to be punished for what he did, what's the punishment for sin? Right? There is, like when you read through Scripture, there's no other punishment for sin. Right? The punishment for sin, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6. It's eternal separation from God. So God in His grace has made us His own, has called us to be His, has, has forgiven our sins eternally. But that doesn't mean that He just doesn't care how we live. That doesn't mean that there's not a lot at stake in His believers being light and salt in this world. And so God is going to do everything that he knows he needs to do for you and I to have our best shot of being on track and living in Christ and sharing the gospel with other people. And sometimes that means that when we're off track and we don't care, he's going to make us care. Because for some of us, the time we're most passionate in the way we talk to God is when we're suffering. And we don't care if everything's good. La-de-dam. Thank you, Lord, and on we go. And God's like, no, that's not that's not working for you. You are set up for a fall if you go down that path. So it goes against this obvious mindset today that we have of God, of, of love, you know, and forgiveness. And even for me as a parent, you know, the, the idea that I should love my children and care for my children. It's hard for many, many people today to embrace the idea that if I love my children like God loves His children, then my children will suffer when they do wrong things and refuse to make it right. And there could be a transformation of the next generation of believers if we as Christian parents would grab a hold of that and live that out. If we would actually follow the example of God instead of following the the current mindset of our culture. Well, people just need to know they're loved. Yes, they do. But who's the definition of love? Our definition? I think if you really want to know what it means to to love, you've got to look at how God interacts. And if we're not willing to do that, then we're not really serious about knowing what it means to love. And so, what can we learn about getting disciplined from this passage? Here's what we can learn. Number one, if God is going to discipline us, It's going to be because of obvious sin. You're not going to have to look into the deep, dark recesses of your soul. You're not going to have to go around taking a poll of everybody digging up like, what do you think it could be? What do you think it could be? I don't know. If you're one of those people who, when life turns dark on you and you go, what did I do? If the answer isn't right there, then it's nothing you did. If God is disciplining you like this, it's something you already know you did. And something you already know is a big deal. You've just tried to pretend it's not. Does that make sense? So, what happens is people live in this like vague guilt of, I know I probably messed up somewhere, and maybe it's this, and maybe it's that, and maybe it's this other thing. God doesn't work with a lot of maybes. If God, let's see, let's just follow this all the way up. If God cares enough about your life, that when you're off track, like the Corinthians off track, he's willing to step into your life and upset it by bringing sickness or, or, or weakness into your life or some kind of discipline into your life, right? If he cares enough about you to do that, do you think that when you say, well, what is it that's causing that, that he goes, well, guess? Do you think that's what he would do? The whole point of him stirring that stuff up in your life is so that you would wake up and examine yourself, and the point of this examination is it won't take you long to recognize what it is. It would be an obvious sin. One that's obvious to you and obvious to everybody else around you. You know? It's like, "Well, I know it's not right to live together before we're married, but that's what we're doing." Okay. What are you going to do about that? Right? I know. I know getting drunk is not the right thing to do. Party isn't the right thing to do. I know cursing is not the right thing to do, but I just don't care. I just whatever, it's just how it is. Okay. So in other words, when you, when God is talking to you, you know what that feels like, right? When God is like dealing with you about something, it's like every message, every song brings up that same theme inside of you. God's just like, you got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. And you're like, shut up. I'm not going to listen to Christian radio anymore. And I'm not going to go to church because I can't take any more of this because I'm not going to do anything about it. You know that feeling, right? And if it's that, then that's when discipline starts coming. Because it's an obvious sin, it's a sin that God has tried to get you to examine on your own and judge on your own and you've said no, so God then says, well fine, if you're not going to do anything about it, then I'm going to do something about it so that we can get this thing on the right track. Now do you see the graciousness of God in that? Because he doesn't do what we would do, fine, do whatever you want. He says, okay, if that's you, then this is me. And he, and he stays fully engaged in our life, so number one, it is obvious sin you should uh, you should be how do I know it 's obvious sin because Paul says, "Examine yourself right um, He says, if we would judge ourselves, we wouldn't come under judgment it's he 's like it 's easy to not come under god 's judgment it 's just take a look at yourself it 's not the idea of Ring yourself over the coals and and wring your hands before the Lord and please, Lord, whatever it is, whatever I've done to upset you. A lot of times that comes from your family background or or relational background, that you live with the kind of underlying understanding that there's probably something you did wrong that's going to get you in trouble, but you just don't know what it is and you're going to have to like really crawl for it for a while before you figure it out, before you guess right. God doesn't work like that. Right, The Holy Spirit, who is a convictor of sin and righteousness and judgment, the Holy Spirit comes and says, here it is right here. If guilt is from God, it's called conviction, and it's sharp, and it's pointed, and it's direct, and it's obvious. If the Spirit is working in you, you don't have to guess what you should do. You almost can't turn it off. Because the Spirit's in you going, you should say something. You should do this. You should be there. You should address that. You should apologize. And it's there, right? So number one, it's obvious sin. Number two, it's an obvious solution. A lot of times it's like, you know, something happened in your life a long, long time ago and and you tried to do everything you could, but you don't know what else you can do and you just live in this like latent guilt over it, right? And that's not what this is. This is not a situation where Paul says, now you've blown it and you can never fix it. The whole point of him saying this, if we judged ourselves, we wouldn't be judged, we wouldn't come under judgment is, you can fix this like that. Go to your brother and say, I'm sorry I treated you like you were less than because you don't have as much money as I do. I should have seen you as a brother or a sister in Christ. I should have shared with you like Jesus shared with me. And so let's do this right next time. When we get together for the love feast next week, I want you to sit with me. I want you to share my meal and I want you to bring anybody and everybody you can think of who has a need so I can supply for them too because we want to do this together. It's that quick that they could make this right. It isn't, you don't get stuck in in discipline. Right? You with me? If you're in discipline from God, the, the door is wide open to being done. Just do the right thing. Just do what's right. And, and God, the, the reason for discipline quickly goes away if my heart is open. The idea, when we, when we refer to James 4, that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, is that God has sets himself against the proud To to humble them, to crush them, to stop them. God resists the proud. And so that's what discipline is. And as soon as you switch from the side of the proud to the humble... You find a very different interaction with your heavenly Father, because that's the interaction he wanted to have all along. But we kind of drove him into this other one because he cares too much about us to let us walk down that path. So does that make sense? Any questions about that? Well, here's the difference. because back in, in Jesus' day, people always connected sickness to sin. Well, you, this man is sick, this man's blind. who sinned is him or his parents? They always connected it to sin. This, Paul's not saying every sickness. He's saying, what's going on in your church is going on because of the hand of God. It doesn't mean every sickness is, but here, this sickness is. You could go back to somebody like Job, and you could see that Job lived uprightly before the Lord, and God brought death and destruction and impoverishment and sickness, right, into his life, not because he'd done anything wrong, but because of God's plan, which here we are you know, 4,000 years later or whatever, reading the story of Job and going, wow, look at Job's faith. Look at how Job walked through that. So there are other plans for it. It's not, Paul's not saying here, anytime there's sickness or weakness or death, the question, the natural question should come to us, ah, who sinned? But if, and you know the feel inside of your soul, if you feel like God is trying to get your attention, you also probably already know what you've been ignoring. And that's what Paul's point is here. That what's going on in your church, you may want to write it off as bad luck. You may want to write it off as, I don't know what's happening, but you do. His point is not that, in other words, in this scenario, nobody would really have to ask, why is this person sick? In this scenario, it would be like, well, they've turned their back on the Lord. They're living however they want, and God's just not going to let them go down that road, right? And does that make sense? Right. Well, I think here he did. But here's what I would say. Um, out of all the letters to all the churches that are written in the New Testament, this is the only one where Paul says to them, you guys have gotten it so messed up, so publicly messed up, and you're causing so much damage to the cause of Christ and the name of Christ in your city that God is intervening in this supernatural way to set you right. That's that's interesting because we tend to think it's either an all or nothing thing. This is an extreme case, not normal case. Yeah. Good, absolutely. absolutely. And I think handicaps and things I mean, this is not God's judgment on somebody. This does not mean that they're a sinner. What he's saying to these people is, I don't have and I think this is another place we as Christian gets off base. I don't have to look at you and say, "Well, that's because you're out of God's plan." It's the person themselves that would know, "This is because I have walked away from God." You know and I think the other thing that's here is you know when you could, when you go on from here when we are judged by the Lord we are being disciplined so we will not be condemned with the world. in other words, there's this sense that you are pressing against the limit of lostness you are like stretching as far as you can from the hand of God in your salvation and there's almost the sense of God's grace that cuts someone off because you're not going to get lost but you're trying to get lost and God says no, that's it. We're, we're done. You're done going that direction. Now you're going to be freed from this world and this life. It's a very different thing than all these mystery sins that are out there or this sense of God moving and puppeting things around. It, this is a specific interaction. It's as specific as you open the word of God and you read it and God speaks to you about something in your life. It's very similar here in that way. And it's obviously from a loving God, it's when it's absolutely necessary for God to get both your attention and to get the change that needs to happen in your life. Because some of us are really stubborn. And if if we can make it by with our own will and our own way, we'll keep making it by. And God says, no, that's the end of it. How many times does God reach before something dramatic like this? How many times is this offered? And I would say this to you. Um, I can think of at least three times in my life where I felt like when life exploded... It was because God had been trying to get my attention for a long time and I kept turning a deaf ear. And, I, and the explosions were harder and worse than, than anything I dreamed was coming. But God got my attention and I knew very quickly what it was he was trying to get through to me on. does that ever happen to you? Like, it was like, here's this thing and, and instantly when this thing happens or when this thing shows up, I all of a sudden know, I've been, I've been ignoring him. In those times for years, each of those times for years, ignoring him, not all over, but in this area of my life, I've been just tuning, I found a way to rationalize or to excuse or to say there's nothing else I could do. And I just sat there and God wasn't going to leave me sit there. And and ultimately, each of those explosions worked out to a better life, a better scenario, better situation for me, which is what God wanted for me all along. But we couldn't get there because I kept pretending it was no problem you know? So yeah, I don't want to give this impression of God is after us with the, with the button to, to shoot lightning bolts down on us when we mess up. That's not the impression here from what Paul's saying. The impression is that God will go to any length to get you where you need to be, to get you moving in the direction you need to be. At times it will be painful, right? And Hebrews 12 talks about he disciplines us because he loves us, just like any good father does. He brings pain into our lives to do good. In our lives, and if if there is something that it needs to be corrected, God will find a way to correct it. He will either ask you over and over again to judge yourself, right, or He will stop it with the intervention. And by the way, you know the end of this passage shows you how simple the addressing of this problem was. Verse thirty three. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. It doesn't that seem so understated in comparison to many are weak and sick and dead in your, in your congregation. And all you got to do is just wait for each other. And the word wait there has the idea of allowing space for each other. Uh, there's an argument that it means to receive one another, to welcome one another, which clearly was not what was happening in the Corinthian church. Um, There is a sense in the, in the, um, the wording that it could refer to the types of meals that wealthy people would want to enjoy and were enjoying. If someone is hungry, if someone wants to eat that kind of meal, let them do it at home or let them bring enough for everybody. That doesn't sound so hard, does it? It sounds like it's just a matter of choosing the right thing. Do you see how simple, when, when we talk about judgment, it almost, what it presents this as, God's judgment on you in this way, God's discipline on you this way, is so unnecessary because God calls you to respond way before we get to any of this. And God is patient and long-suffering with you, and He will exhaust every avenue in your life to call to you for a response. And until you finally say no in a way that God knows is a final no, unless the stakes are raised, then God will raise the stakes. Because God cares too much about us to leave us wander on our own. So does it make sense? Questions or thoughts about that? It's a it's something that plays on our inherent guilt and unworthiness. When we hear unworthy manner, we're like, that's me. Um, judgment and examine yourself. Such loaded words uh, about looking at yourself and digging through all your sin and stuff. Man, here's what you do with your sin. Christ. Here's my sin. It's a mess. Take it from me. Take it away. Wash me clean. I want to follow you. That's what you do. This is not about God punishing you because you keep trying to do the right thing, but you keep following and you haven't, you know, it's like me saying, you know, when, when my child was learning to walk and they didn't learn to walk the first time, I'm going to like be all mad at them and make them pay so that they learn to walk. Like, yeah, God is not upset with people who are in process and growing. He's not, you know, short-tempered and quick with the, with the, with the lightning bolt or anything like that. But there are times when we should be walking, and we're not. Um, When Kara was really little, really little, she broke her leg on a trampoline. And we have this little cast. It's about that big for her whole leg. Uh, And she had that cast on for about a month, maybe five weeks. Um, And when it got taken off, it hurt for her to walk on it. So she didn't walk on it. She scrambled around on the floor. And we let it go for a little bit. We let it go for a couple of days. And then eventually what I said to her, and I got very stern with Kara. And if you knew Kara when she was that big, you would know that me getting stern with her was all that it took. And I said, Kara, you need to walk. You need to stop crawling around the floor and you need to walk. And you need to walk now. And you know, big brown eyes looking at me and like, uh, and sure enough, she got up and walked. And it was kind of the threat of the sternness in my voice that this is going to be a bigger issue if you don't do what I say. Why did I do that? Because she was scared of something that she could handle. And she needed to get over that and get back to... I wasn't challenging her she had to go run a race, but she had, to, she had to move forward. She couldn't stay stuck on the floor crawling around like a little baby. She had to kind of like stretch a little bit, right? And the only thing that would get that done is dad getting stern with her. Not because I was mad at her or frustrated with her or upset with her, but because she needed that from me so that she could move forward. And I think a lot of times from the other side of that, what we get is the impression that God is so mad at me and oh no, I think he hates me. And, and it's just God giving us exactly what we need. He knows us so well. He knows when we need to hear from him loudly because he wants us to be doing what is right and living the life we should live. Bob? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously that's with the Lord. Yeah. That's something I don't know. I, I know that there's a lot of doctrinal things flying around that I don't think are very godly. And you wonder, how long are you going to let this sit out there, Lord? But that's God's business. You know, maybe, the, maybe some of those folks aren't God's children. I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I just know that this passage is for me, for me to look at myself and say, when, when God comes into my life and, and tries to point something out, I am always better off to respond than to ignore. And that sounds like no da. except what I really kind of act like sometimes is like sin is no big deal. Like living for myself is no big deal. And God treats it like a very big deal. And it's surprising to me how surprising that is for Christians. That God treats sin like a very big deal. Do you know what he did because of sin? Yeah. He sent his son to die for sin. It's a very big deal with God. And I don't get how, because he's gracious and merciful, we just treat it like it's nothing. Because I don't because i don't have to go to hell for it I, you know what i mean like god clearly sees sin as devastatingly poisonous and destructive enough so that he would send his son to die so we we as believers we as his children as followers shouldn't we think the same way about it in our lives shouldn't we have a real sensitivity to him in following him down that path i think that's when you talk about galatians 6 don't be deceived god is not mocked what you sow you reap you sow to the flesh You reap destruction. You sow to the Spirit, you reap life. Which, by the way, has to be written to Christians because an unsaved person can't sow to the Spirit. So he's writing to Christians in Galatians 6. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You sow to the flesh, you reap death, destruction. Anybody ever sowed to the flesh and reaped destruction? Lots and lots and lots. Anybody ever sowed to the Spirit and reaped life? Yeah. So God is exactly right, isn't he? And what's God's desire for you? Life or death? Life. So God will always find a way to be after us about turning away from things that bring death and turning towards the spirit that brings life. And when it has to be loud and it has to be hard and it has to be severe, it will be because God knows exactly what we need every time. All right, well, we'll pick up there next week. Um, Getting into chapter 12, we're going to start talking about the body of Christ, And the way that God designed us to work, which uh, should be a lot of fun to look at that stuff.